Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. So you're here. You made it. It's Easter morning. You actually woke up, made it to church. You guys look great. I don't know why all of you are here. It's one of those questions we ask on a morning like Easter. How'd you get here? Perhaps your spouse dragged you. Your parents dragged you. You dragged your parents. What do you think it is that people come to church on Easter morning looking for? Probably, if we're going to be honest, some are looking for a way out. Back to the ham and the NBA basketball games later today. Some people come on Easter for their annual inspiration fill-up, something to match the beauty of the flowers as they're in bloom. Some people, of course, come to a place like church looking for God, either because they've never found him and are hoping maybe to taste him for the first time, or because they have tasted of him and they want to come back to experience God again. What is it you're looking for? You know, all of us in life are looking for something. And when we talk about it on the most fundamental and deepest level, it's the idea that all of us are looking for meaning, for significance, for purpose in life. We're looking for something around which to build our identity, to orient us and direct our lives. You know, if you wanted orientation and direction just 10 years ago, you didn't use your phone. Pre-GPS, if you were trying to navigate on the oceans or if you were out in the woods doing orienteering, you navigated with a compass and a map. Now, here's the crazy thing about using a compass. A compass, we orient by pointing it towards north, but it doesn't actually point to north. It points to magnetic north, whereas the map that you're using when you're out in the woods is oriented towards true north. So it's something like this. You're Your compass says this is north, but actually north is this way. And you need to know based on where you're living, where you're walking around, where your boat is, how many degrees off of true north you are so that you can set your compass and your map appropriately. Once you have that set, you can use the map and figure out where you're going in life or in orienteering. When we talk about it in the way of life, we often find something to orient us, something to give us a sense of true north, some way to give us direction. 
Christianity makes this fundamental claim. If it's anything other than God that is your true orienting point, you're off by some degree. We often look towards something to direct us, something to point us in the right way, something to give us a sense of true north. We'll look towards things like our career, our achievements, relationships, to give us that sense of which direction to go so that we can find meaning and purpose in life. But the Bible also makes this claim. If that thing is not God, we will be off course. And in time, we'll realize that we're heading in the wrong direction. And you can see this with any of the things we tend to make most ultimate in our lives. If it is our career or our family or our good looks or our achievements or our intellect, at some point or another, they will fail us or we will fail in them. And even when they are not failing or we're not failing in them, they don't fill us up deeply or they don't fill us up long enough. Take any example of some of the things we try and orient our lives around. For instance, if career success is central to you, the way you orient and figure out who you are, then what happens when somebody is more successful than you and comes along? Or you fall short of your career goals. You don't get into that university. You don't quite make it to the top in your field. You find yourself losing your bearings. If, in another example, you're orienting your whole life around the approval of your parents, your mom and your dad and what they say, then even if you've achieved all the great things that we say you want to achieve in life, career success, a good family, lots of friends, they won't actually make you happy. Because until you can be sure that mom or dad approve of you, even those good things that you have in your life are not going to add up to enough. And as you know, when you're looking for other people's approval, you can never get enough of it. You can never be sure that they actually are okay with you. And so you're never fully okay with yourself. Some of us orient our lives around being a good person. We think if I'm just good enough, that's heading in the right direction. But when that's the central orienting point of our lives, we find that we either head in the direction of superiority because I'm better than most people. And I'm going to end up looking down on other people who I don't think measure up. Or I'm going to be going around constantly feeling defeated and horrible about myself because I know I don't measure up to my own standards. Everything we turn to to orient us besides God is built on the basis of performance. We have to keep performing. It has to keep giving. We're never satisfied. We're never sure we've done enough. We need something more satisfying, more lasting, more significant to orient our lives. Significant events have a tendency to reorient us, even if just momentarily. Nothing says Easter like talking about major snowstorms, right? I don't know how many of you were here in 2010 when Snowmageddon hit. It was that double whammy of two and a half feet of snow followed a few days later by a foot and a half to two feet of snow. Three to four feet of snow blanketed the D.C. area. The funny thing about a snowstorm, it 
it, it has a way of getting in the way of whatever it is you thought you were going to do that day. And when three feet of snow falls, you can't get to work like you thought you were going to. You can't put the kids on the bus anymore. Your day is going to be different. In fact, that week was fundamentally different for everyone who was here. A simple snowstorm had the effect of reorienting everything we were going to do that day and that week. Sometimes the event is more significant in our life, like getting married or getting divorced, like having a child or like losing somebody close to you. Those major life events have an effect on us where we stop and we say, am I still heading north? Do I really know what it's all about? Significant events fundamentally reorient us. And Christianity makes this claim. The cross and the empty tomb is the ultimate significant event. It is the ultimate reorienting point in all of history and in every one of our lives. Pastor Tim Keller, writing in the book, The King's Cross, put it this way. The Christian premise is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection form the central event of cosmic and human history as well as the central organizing principle of our lives. Said another way, the whole story of the world and of how we fit into it is most clearly understood through the story of Jesus. What it's all about, where it's all going, true north, is in Jesus. And the question we're asking on a morning like this is, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the central orienting point in your life? Should it even be? I suppose if we're going to ask that question, we have to ask these other questions is, did this really happen? And is Jesus who he claimed to be? And so, you go to the story itself as a starting point. In the story as we read it this morning in the Gospel of John, one of four accounts of the resurrection, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene had been one of his followers, one of his friends. What do you think she was going to the tomb looking for that day? You know what she was going to look for? A dead body the dead body of a close friend of hers. She expected to go and honor the body with the embalming and the way that they did the rituals following the death of somebody close to them. She went to go see a dead body and to mourn the loss of a close friend. But what she found fundamentally reoriented her whole life. She found the stone rolled away, the tomb empty, and later on that day, she found Jesus alive. And of course, we as moderns have to ask, could that really have happened? Is this a valid claim that Jesus rose from the dead? It's what Christianity claims. I can't prove to you that it happened absolutely, but I can say that in many of the evidences that are there, it's certainly plausible, maybe even probable. Nothing else makes sense of what follows. You see, some of what we get in the plausibility is in the details themselves. As we go on reading in verses 3 through 7, we have the account that John gives us, that Peter and this other disciple, which is actually John talking about himself, 
go running towards the tomb. The account is so full of details. John says, and I outran Peter and got there first and looked in. And when I looked into the tomb, I saw the linens lying there, the linens that would have been wrapped around the body like a mummy. If somebody had come simply to steal the body, they would have taken the body with the mummy linens wrapped around it. Something else happened according to the way that they're describing it. They get into the details of the actions. I looked in first, then Peter ran in. The linens were there. Then, we, then I went in as well. And the way that the description is given here, it's given in historical accounting. This is not historical fiction. That genre didn't exist. In fact, the way that we know things like Julius Caesar did what he did is because of histories written about him. Those histories follow the exact same form as these accounts. The disciples are writing what they saw, what they believed happened. A second evidence for why this might be possible or plausible is, of course, the appearance of women at the resurrection in the empty tomb. In all four accounts, women are the first people to be present to see Jesus risen from the dead. The reality is, if you were trying to make up a story that everyone would believe in, you would never have included women. And here's why. In ancient Jewish courts, the testimony of women was not allowed. They were believed to be untrustworthy. This was so much so in the first couple centuries that an antagonist of Christianity, Celsus, a philosopher in the second century, one of the reasons he gave for not believing in Christianity was that the accounts of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus are littered with accounts of women. Women were the first ones to supposedly see him risen, and everyone knows that women are hysterical, and you can't believe them. That is a Greek philosopher a hundred years later. There was no reason to include the accounts of women being present unless women were actually present. If you're making this up, you don't include Mary Magdalene. And of course, it's not just these sorts of historical accounts. It's the effect on history. From this point on, Christianity spread and spread and spread. You know, there were dozens of messiahs or would-be messiahs within a hundred years of Jesus. And you know what happened with all of them? Every one of them ended up executed. Many of them crucified like Jesus. And every one of their movements disbanded within weeks except for some reason this movement around this Messiah. His followers, his closest friends, didn't believe that he had simply died on that cross and been laid in a tomb. They fundamentally believed something different had happened. They believed he had risen from the dead. And nearly every one of his closest followers went around and ended up killed horribly themselves because they believed that something different had happened, something to reorient the whole course of history and the hope of their life, that Jesus was actually risen. The resurrection is the fundamental reorienting point of history. But it doesn't just change history, it changes human lives. What Jesus said, who he claimed to be, and what happened on Good Friday and on Easter morning is the good news of Christianity that doesn't just change all of Western history from that point on. It changes our lives personally.
This is the good news of Christianity, what we call the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has died and risen for us. But if he needs to do that, we need to ask, why does he need to die and rise for me? And that's the basic starting point of the good news of Christianity. It's that we aren't right. None of us are right with God. We are all disoriented. Now, I know some of us think that we're okay, we're doing all right. And we assume that if, when we get to the end, we get there, that it's going to reveal that our lives have been good enough. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, has a great quote from the New York Times this week. The New York Times reporter, writing about something he had done, then records how he's facing his own mortality and the possibility of judgment in heaven. And this is what the reporter says. He, Michael Bloomberg, has little doubt what would await him at Judgment Day. Pointing to his political achievements, he said with a grin, I'm telling you, if there is a God, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, we laugh because there's some fundamental arrogance there, right? (laughs) But the problem with that is not just the arrogance, it's that he assumes his standard His orienting point, his political achievements, his record, are enough. Nearly all of us do the same thing. It might not be political achievements. It's raising kids. It's being a good citizen. It's our good deeds outweighing our bad. We are essentially setting our own standard. We assume we know what true north is. The Bible tells us that all of us are disoriented. All of us are sinners. You know, we hear the word sinner, we tend to think of moral vices, the bad things you're not supposed to do. But when Jesus comes along, he redefines sin, not as avoiding the bad things, but sin is living without regard for God. It's whenever we make something more important in our lives than God himself. And on that basis, All of us have sinned and fall short of God's standard. All of us are lost. And the gospel tells us that when the end comes for all of us, it's not who you are and what you've done that matters. It's who Jesus is and what he has done. Because it is by grace we are saved through faith in Christ not by our works or goodness ourselves. And that's the gospel message. The gospel message is though we are fundamentally wrong and not right with God, that we are made right by the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes judgment in our place. He dies the death we deserve so we can live the life he lived. If you want to sum up the gospel, it goes like this. We are sinners but we are loved. We're more sinful than we're willing to admit, but more loved in Jesus Christ than we can dare to imagine. In other words, to be a Christian is not to be a better, more religious person. It's to realize just how spiritually dead you are, to believe what Jesus has done, 
and then to be resurrected spiritually to new life and eternal life. Don't worry. You do get to leave this room soon. But even as you leave here today, where are you going? What direction are you going in life? How can you even tell if you're disoriented? Where do you begin to start the process? I think what we see that John, the disciple who's writing this, where we see him go is actually a good place to start. We read that while John gets to the tomb first in verse 8, he doesn't go in, but then the other disciple, which is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw the linens, the empty tomb, and he too believed. He entered, he looked, and he believed. If you're trying to figure out whether you're oriented rightly today, start by entering. And hey, look, you've done a good thing. You've entered here, right? But don't stop here. Keep entering into the conversation. You've got to figure out what to do with this Jesus. Look, the main thing that I find when I talk to people about Jesus is not that they hate Jesus or they're in love with him. It's rather that they've never really thought about it. They're indifferent. But nobody who ever met Jesus was indifferent to him. Every person who met him was scared to death of him and wanted to kill him or they fell down before him and wanted to make him Lord. To not decide, to choose not to enter into the discussion is to leave yourself fundamentally disoriented. Enter in and then look, see, seek, Look around. Talk to people. Try and figure out if this Jesus is who he claimed to be. Look at some books. Read the Bible yourself. I've got two books that if you're in the process of trying to figure this stuff out yourself, you can pick these up on your way out. Out the door, I have copies of The Reason for God, which is seven most common challenges to Christianity, and a copy of The Story of Jesus, which is a compilation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts of Jesus. If you're trying to figure this out, pick up one of those books. Don't leave any money behind. They're only about two bucks each. Just take one. Read it. See for yourself. Try and figure out if this Jesus is who he claims to be. John went in. He saw and then he believed. And that's the last question. Are you willing to believe this thing? I mean, ultimately, each of us has to decide. Each of us has to figure this out ourselves to ask the centering question, who is Jesus? What did he do? Take a step in today and in the coming weeks. And look, you don't have to have it all figured out to believe. John didn't have it all figured out. He just saw the tomb was empty and was like, something different has happened. I'm willing to take another step in. It's like getting in the ocean. Some people like to just run in and some of us hours later are still only up to our thigh. Faith in Christ can be the same way. Step in with as much as you have today. You know, each of us generally assumes that we're heading in the right direction. We just need a little bit of reorientation. 
The Bible makes the claim that we are fundamentally disoriented. We're trying to find our way without true north. Like trying to find your way in a cave where you can't see anything. To be off of true north in orienteering can have consequences over the course of miles. But to be off on the most significant orienting person and event in all of human history has spiritual and eternal consequences. So are you heading in the right direction today? Or is it possible you're lost? Do you want to be found? Start by looking in the tomb. Let's pray. God, sometimes these things that we celebrate at Easter are hard for us to get our heads around. We're simply trying to make it in life, trying to figure out which way is up. Some of us are very well convinced that we've got it figured out. I pray that if this is true, if who you are and what you've done really did happen, that you would help us to see, grasp, believe, and experience resurrection ourselves. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.